0: If you were an engineer, what would you do? I'm Ollie Guyu, and this is a Primary Engineer podcast. Welcome to season two. It is great to be back. Throughout the series, we'll be hearing from engineers at the top of their game, university prototype teams turning wild ideas into reality, and starting each episode by hearing the engineering ideas of children Hesinford Ford Primary School kicks us off.
1: Hi my name is Alina Khan. My idea is a sock machine and it basically just keeps your socks organised and in colour order. You can also type in the colour you would like and it will spin around and give you it from the bottom of the tube. My inspiration and my creativity come from my best friend because one of her socks were on the washing line and the other one was in the drawer. So that gives me the inspiration to make a machine that could keep both of your socks together organised and also keep them in colour order. Hello my name is Harris, and my invention was a TV
0: What moved and rotated on the wall. It can move to you by pressing a remote. You can turn it upside down when you're not watching it and it will turn off automatically and save electric.
1: Hi my name is Abdullah Elias. My idea was a football for disabled people. I made it because I have fun playing football so I want them to have even more fun than I do.
0: Now, throughout the season, we want you to help us with a number of different problems. We're going to hear from some of the country's biggest companies who will be asking for your help to solve various engineering challenges. Here's Eita from Global Power Technology Company, Cummins.
2: Hi, my name is Eita and I design turbochargers. They get very hot when they're working and sometimes they melt other parts of the engine close to them. Can anybody help with keeping the heat away from the other parts?
0: You got that? Not an easy one. So ATA works on turbochargers, which is essentially a device fitted to a vehicle's engine with the aim of increasing its performance and making it more efficient. But as he says, they get very hot. Can you think of a way to stop them from melting other parts of the engine? You can send your thoughts to info at or comment on our Twitter post. Just search at Leaders Award. Right, so let's kick off with our first interview of the new series.
2: My name's Keith Scobie-Youngs and I am a turret clock horologist.
0: Keith is the founder of the Cumbria Clock Company. They maintain and repair clocks around the country from small clocks on village halls to much larger clocks like those at Salisbury Cathedral and Hampton Court Palace. Until very recently, the CCC team had Big Ben, the Big Ben from the Palace of Westminster in London, in their workshop. I asked Keith what that felt like.
2: Well, I mean, it's the, it's the milestone of anybody in, in, <laughs> in any, you know, in, in turret clock horology. It is the most important clock in the world. It, is, it has all that history, good and bad. It has, it's inspired people. And it is just such an iconic part of British life as a young man when I was doing my improving as they called it in London I'd drive past this clock and with some of the men who had been involved with it for decades before and they would tell me the stories of it and I never ever imagined that I'd be given the opportunity to work on it and to suddenly be up in that clock tower taking that clock apart and bringing it back up to our workshops And seeing the enjoyment of everybody here at the Cumbria Clock Company being part of it and becoming involved in it has just been one of those wonderful experiences in my life.
0: What has that um, engineering process been like then? What's been involved in the restoration?
2: I mean, conservation engineering is is very interesting. What you have to do is to kind of get into the head of the person who designed it and, and start to understand its horological importance. What you've got to realise with the clock at the Palace of Westminster, it was the smartphone of 1859. It was the first clock mechanism which could keep big dials, 23 and a half feet in diameter, to the correct time, absolutely to the second time. And then as a conservator, you bring that clock in here, you start to understand... The work that that person did, the design processes, and then how you've got to treat that clock to bring it back to how he was, and the complications about understanding what materials to use, why he used the materials, the tolerances that he was he felt were acceptable, and the theory behind how everything worked. So you you start to get an understanding of another person's thought process and then bring in modern restoration and conservation techniques that we use in other areas of engineering to make sure that this wonderful, iconic clock mechanism is there for another 162 years.
0: Yeah, so for you, it's not it's not enough just to know how a clock works, what makes it tick. It really is a lesson in history for you whenever you do take on a project like this.
2: And also how you become part of the history. You're- Into this clock, you know, there will be many, many clockmakers which follow me in the next 163 years and, and feel the same as I did. And I think that's really special, you know, to be in an area of engineering where. People will research that clock and they will come across the Cumbria Clock Company and they will find photographs of everybody here and look back in history and wonder what type of people we were. I mean, that's what I'm doing now. I'm looking at photographs of people from 1920, 1890 who were working on that clock. And you can't help but think, I wonder what they were like. I wonder what their house was like. You know, All these little questions it makes you ask as well as the kind of understanding of the work that they did.
0: The future clockmakers are going to have to get into your head, just like you've been doing. Is that an unenviable task?
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big question to ask me. Um, Anyway, yeah, I I think think hopefully uh, with this project, we have created a, a knowledge bank. We are writing a manual for it. We are doing a full set of drawings. So that the you know people will have a better understanding of the clock than we did at the Cumbria Clock Company when we started this project, and I think that's a nice legacy to leave.
0: And the restoration due to be completed this year, how's it going to feel for you and the team? You know, to hear it chime, but also to to see it leave. I, I suppose it's kind of bittersweet in that respect.
2: It, it is bittersweet, but I think I mean that's what's happened all our w- my working life. One of the first things I did when I went to Birmingham Polytechnic back in 1981 was I had to file a cube in brass and it had to be within 0.1 on all faces. You put a lot of time and and effort into making this cube and then the lecturer would come along, look at it, measure it, mark it and then put it in his pocket. And you say, well, can I have that cube? And he says, no, you've got to learn to let go of the work that you've done. And I think that was a very valuable lesson all those years ago. (laughs) And you do let go of it and you're proud of what you've achieved and you have left it in the better place than when you found it. And as I keep on going on about you, you have this legacy associated with the clock. There's a clockmaker in Cumbria who sadly passed away recently and I think of him a lot. And he always said to me, Keith, when you're working on a clock, Imagine the original clockmaker sitting behind you. And if he's got a smile on his face, carry on. If he's frowning, put your tools down and walk out the door. So I think those are the type of feelings you have when you leave this clock.
0: You've not just worked on Big Ben, of course. You've got other major projects, clocks like you've mentioned that you've looked after over the years. What have, what have been some of the the really big, kind of, you know some of your favourite clocks to work on?
2: Well, I mean, I'm very fortunate. We have, as a a team, been able to work on some of the wonderful clocks. And, you know, you've got Hampton Court Palace, the astronomical clock there of 1540. It's a a fantastic thing. It tells you the date, the date of the zodiac, the phases of the moon, the position of the sun in the sky, the position of the moon in the sky, the night sky and the age of the moon, and also high tide at London Bridge, and one dial. And that dial can show so many things. The more I go and look at it, the more you start to learn from it. And that's something from 1540. We do the clock at Salisbury Cathedral, made in 1386. That's a wrought iron clock, and it's made like a piece of carpentry. It's it's just remarkable you kind of think, you know, oh, wow, that's been telling time for all that those centuries, and you again become absorbed in its, its story. And then there are other clocks, electric clocks from the 1910, the Royal Liver Clock, the biggest dials in the country, 24 feet in diameter, and the clock there is an electromechanical machine which they call a pendulum motor, where this pendulum powers the clock, not the clock powering the pendulum. And it's a wonderful thing. And then you quite often find these wonderful gems, these beautiful clocks and tune play machines in small towns and villages, which have been playing to their community for decades. And they're equally wonderful as some of the big prestigious clocks that we've had the pleasure of working on. And, th- and there's a wonderful, wonderful clock at a small village called Wootton Rivers. And it was made by a fantastic chap called Jack Spratt. This village were wondering what they could do for Queen Victoria's Jubilee. And they thought they'd raise money to have a clock on the church. Anyway, they didn't raise enough money to, to have the clock. So they had a tea party instead. But Jack Spratt turned around and he says, look, well, I still think we should have a clock. And if people are willing to donate parts from their house, their garden, their, their farmyard, I will build a clock. And Jack Spratt built this clock out of bits and bobs. It has bits of milking machine in there, bits of bicycles, all sorts of things. He built the dial so that they could be put on the church from the inside so he didn't need scaffolding. A real engineer, a fantastic engineer, Jack Spratt. And that is one of my most favourite clocks in this small village of Wootton Rivers. And it's still ticking away, keeping time to this very day. He made another clock for the village school where he used a gallstone for the pendulum bomb.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. So... um your family is following in your footsteps, which is is amazing to see, uh, you know, and not just one member of your family. It's really, you've really passed on the bug for horology. Um, How did you pass on that
2: interest? I don't really know. I mean, (laughs) um, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say. William and Callum, my two sons, I think if you ask them individually when they're in their Know, late teens, early 20s, they'd have said, I don't want anything to do with clocks because they have been dragged around clock towers since the time they could walk. And my nephew, Peter, who's involved in horology, I think he he just kind of, like with William and Callum, saw these machines. And once people see these things working, they they kind of buy into it and they see why they are so fascinating just g- g- sit and watch one work and you can't help but be hypnotized by by the way they work
0: have you managed to glean any advice that you can give for young in- engineers in the making a way of getting them curious and interested in not just horology but engineering
2: in general go to go to the science museums and go and indulge yourself in these wonderful bits of engineering perhaps take a little bit of a closer look at these bridges that we just drive over in our cars, perhaps look at those ships in the dockyard and, and just stand in awe of the people that made them, designed them, the person who had the original thought. I remember you, you go and see SS Great Britain in Bristol. You can't help but think, wow, isn't by Kingdom Brunel building that, that great wrought iron ship? I mean that, that is brave, isn't it? That that's what engineering is all about. Stevenson and his rocket, I mean, that must have been exciting building that. And so I think if you indulge yourself in going to see what people had done in the past, and then perhaps think, if they did that, perhaps I could do something and people will look back on me and say, How wonderful I was and you know, that thing that I designed is now in a museum. And, you know, your family will several generations later discover what an important thing you did in engineering.
0: And now you took part in the primary engineer talks where you got asked uh, questions from children. I like to think I'm a a good interviewer, but typically children beat me every time uh, with the questions that they ask. Did you get asked any, was there a particular favorite of the ones that you got asked?
2: I thought one was just brilliant. And I mean, it's so obvious. Somebody said, how does a clock work? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, That's a great question, you know, because you just sit there and kind of go, This is what I do, and now I've got to explain it. I just think that was a really good question. Yeah.
0: Well, Keith, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast.
2: It's been really enjoyable. Thank you very much, Ollie.
0: Hi, Josh here. Throughout this podcast, you've learned about many amazing designs and ideas that have been dreamt up by school pupils right across the UK. This has all been made possible thanks to the Leaders Award competition, which asked pupils, if you were an engineer, what would you do? Tens of thousands of pupils have taken part, with each and every one of them receiving a graded certificate from a real-life engineer. Learn how you can bring this fully funded competition into your school by visiting leadersaward.com. Now, just like in season one of the podcast, we like to end each episode by hearing from some of the proto-teams who've been tasked with turning the winning ideas from the If You Were an Engineer competition into working prototypes. Let me first introduce you to Charlie from All Saints Secondary School, whose idea inspired today's proto-team.
1: I've come up with this invention that is a storage unit that is voice-activated. My two sisters, both younger than me, have storage units in their bedroom, and they're quite often too short to reach the top shelves. And I thought if it was voice <laughs> activated, then that would be great. So, like, and very helpful for my household.
0: So, so how how would it work? Would it just the just the door part compartment of it is voice activated, or, or yeah, the is it, door does compa- it go further than that?
1: Yeah, it will like lower itself down. So if you like ask the top shelf to open, it will like lower down to the bottom to the ground.
0: Such an amazing idea! Now let's meet the team turning it into a reality. So, hi, I'm Tom, and I'm the project manager at the University
1: of Strathclyde's Prime Engineer Prototype Team. Hi, I'm Fraser. I'm a student at Strathclyde, and I'm the vice team lead of the Strathclyde Prototype Team. The our chosen prototype is the Auto Calax. A Calax is essentially IKEA's name for its shelving
0: unit. And I know with uh, these things often you'll immediately have ideas about how you expect it will work and the sorts of plans you're going to put in place to start building it. It's, it's one of those things you just kind of get flooded with, isn't it, with inspiration and ideas mm. the moment you see it. Um, so have you, in your head, sort of mapped out um, a route forward and, and how you're going to build this?
1: Yeah, so we went through, I think we actually had seven total Calax concepts of a whole bunch of completely different ways that we could... Um, Sort of come about and making something that uh, fitted Charlie's brief. Some of them were a bit more outlandish than others. We had one, for example, that was like a rotating sort of windmill thing that would lower each box down. <laughs> uh, but obviously, that's quite complicated and like, it's not very space efficient. I think the designs we took to. So we've already met Charlie. We took we took two designs to her to really get her input on on what mm-hmm. one she thought was best. And the, the design she ended up picking was a was a crane design. So effectively, the box gets picked up by a little crane and the crane's all contained within the actual shelving unit itself. And then when Charlie would call to lower the box down, the crane would take the box out from the shelf and then lower it down to ground
0: level. So when it, when it comes to beginning the work, you've got that design, you've got the idea. Do you think it's going to be easy to implement?
1: I think there will be challenges, especially with um, the voice control aspect of it. I think that might be a, a big challenge. But I think that uh, we've got a good design. Um, you know, Charlie's happy with it, and everyone in the team's uh, confident that we can manufacture this design. I think it will be a challenge, and it will obviously take quite a few weeks next semester to uh, bring it all together. But I think everyone's really confident that we'll work, and we're all really excited to to build it.
0: What has this competition meant for for you, and, and how has it sort of inspired you?
1: I think personally, I found really uh, when we met Charlie a couple of weeks ago. We got to unveil that she had won the competition. Uh, to her, she, she was uh, in the dark about that, and she had a massive smile on her face. She was really pleased, and I personally found that really rewarding. And it's really inspired me to, you know, make this project, you know, the, the best outcome as it can, and create the best auto calyx that the team could possibly produce. <laughs> yeah, again, another thing I think uh, for me with the other designs that were created by some of the young people is how aware young people are now of um Mm. things such as climate change especially and um water pollution like i know growing up personally it wasn't that much of a it was obviously climate change was a thing was never like in your like forefront of your mind but it seems Mm. to be how much young people seem to be aware of these uh things and kind of gives hope for the future that if people are thinking about this already at uh, the young age that some of these entries are coming from that there's hope for things such as climate change and water pollution and litter etc
0: a massive thank you to everyone who spoke to me for today's episode. I'm your host Oli Giu. If you are an engineer, is a primary engineer production. Season two has just begun, and we're releasing new episodes every week. Remember, if you have a solution to today's problem, get in touch with us on Twitter at Leaders Award or email info at leadersaward.com. We want to know how to stop a turbocharger from melting other parts of a vehicle's engine. Check us out, listen to the back catalogue and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And head over to our website, leadersaward.com podcasts to access loads of extra content.